Upside Chats. The podcast where, every week, commies sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, Chairman Mao, live like him, dare to struggle, dare to win. We read the pieces on practice and on contradiction from 1937. I was going to play a sound effect, but uh, there's going to be a delay. I don't How about this? Blunts up for Chairman Mao. <laughs> so, the Mao, are we Mao. that much the Weed Podcast now that there's like an opening every... We're the Weed Podcast now. Oh, man. I, I have on our Patreon, Swampside Chats is creating the highest communist podcast. I've seen that, and gay as well. It's also, it's also it's gay in here. Yeah, it's also gay. All right. So, I'll just read the intro. The law of contradiction in things, that is, the law of the unity of opposites, is the basic law of materialist dialectics. Lenin said, dialectics in the proper sense is the study of contradiction in the very essence of objects. Lenin often called this law the essence of dialectics. He also called it the kernel of dialectics. In studying this law, therefore, we cannot touch upon a variety of questions, upon a number of philosophical problems. If we can become clear on all these problems we shall arrive at a fundamental understanding of materialist dialectics. The problems are the two world outlooks, the universality of contradiction, the particularity of contradiction, the principal contradiction and the principal aspect of a contradiction, the identity and struggle of the aspects of a contradiction and the place of antagonism in contradiction. And those are basically the sections um, that are contained in this piece. Yeah. Thanks for the outline chairman Mao. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clean that way. So maybe we should talk a little bit about why we read this to get started. So we're on a kind of a dialectics, not exactly a reading series, but there's a string of thought here. This is this a diamat um, rumspringer. It's a fling. Yeah. We're having a fling with dialectics. It's a summer fling. We're reading this following our reading of... Um, Dialectical and historical materialism. And in some ways, I think this can be read as... An extension of that, a response to that, and I think in some places maybe even like a subtle, like under the table critique of that. It's interesting because this is also tied to On Practice, which is another polemic written around the same time. Um, This is written August 1937. They were up in the guerrilla base in Yan'an. What these texts are supposed to be fighting against exactly? On some level, there's a criticism of uh, what's called the DeBoren School that Mao sees as idealistic and dogmatic um, in On Practice. Right, um, yeah. On Practice in particular is aimed at, quote, the dogmatists, quote. He's talking about the DeBoren school, which was in Soviet philosophy in the 1920s. You had two competing schools. I think it was the Mechanist and the DeBorenist. And the DeBorenists were actually more dialectical influence, surprisingly. And I think that ultimately Stalin basically purged that school and consolidated the mechanist approach to the dialectic. And that would be represented by what we read for the last episode in, in the Stalin piece. And 
This is both, in a way, a critique and affirmation of Stalinist dialectics. One thing I noticed is that, you know how Stalin leaves out negation of negation of the three laws? He has interpenetration yeah. of opposites, and yeah. he has quantitative the qualitative. But in this, all Mao really talks about is interpenetration of opposites yep. and contradiction. And he tries to make an entire theory of dialectics based off just the concept of contradiction. It's kind of interesting. I read much the same thing here. It's amazing that the three laws turned to two, turned to one. In a way, Mao rejected certain dogmas of Marxism, but he rejected all the best ones. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Mao is aware that cow dung makes a great fertilizer. Um, do we want to talk about on practice? I can go through my notes if you like, but I yeah, I, I feel free to interrupt me. Um, basically, previous materialism was not reflexive. Uh, its epistemology wasn't materially grounded. Um, Marxists think production is the most fundamental practical activity. It determines all activities. Knowledge depends on, on production activity pretty much exclusively. Basically, if you don't have production activity, you, you, you can't really have knowledge. Um, he waffles between, you know, qualifying it, and then he just outright says it. Um, well, I mean, I don't think that's disagreeable, that without production, you really don't have knowledge in the sense of you can't have written or stored knowledge. I, I, don't, I don't think that's what he means. I think he means that knowledge in terms of a conceptual grasp can, is not achievable without practical activity. And there's, yeah, there's, a but, lot, there's some knowledge, or there's quite a bit of knowledge, that most of the relevant knowledge in the human world, where I think that's true, but I don't think it's universally true. Well, I think a lot of what he, I think what he might mean is that a lot of knowledge, like say the first knowledge that humans ever developed, came through its you know its contradiction with nature and having to make an interface with nature. It had to develop abstractions and system of knowledge in order to basically just survive within nature. So even then, there was with human activity, you know, a corresponding. You know, system of ideas and abstractions and whatnot well I, I don't i don't disagree with that and in fact i kind of like this piece more than on contradiction but the, the thing is he's saying all knowledge and he even says later i mean if you think if you think that any knowledge comes you know without this i mean you know without some kind of practical activity um yeah you're and an idealist like, <laughs> and that's used as an argument by a lot of activist types, funny enough, because they say that, you know, you can study Marxism as much as you want. You can read all of the books and study every political question in depth. But in the end, the only real knowledge and the only insightful things that people have to say have to be proven in practice, whatever that means. And so therefore... It reduces, you know, political discussion to the most base, rudimentary, you know, questions of day-to-day -day practice in a way. I mean, I, f I feel like what Mao is saying is better than that, but it, it's well, not I'm talking great. about Mao still not great practice. Like if, if you read if you read Maoist polemics, for example, which I spend too much time doing, is often really in-depth, long, you know, articles with huge block quotes just about simple day-to-day -day questions of like whether. This person should be purged because they held this view, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like it's specifically RGA. 
we're talking about you guys directly. <laughs> I noticed our Stalin episode was very popular in Austin. Yeah, I really hope yeah. Red Guards Austin are now like spying on Swampside chats as you know, we're like Radio Free Europe. <laughs> <laughs> You're penetrating Radio the Free Trotsky. Sp- spreading uh, revisionism. Their mighty wall that stands between us. I mean, I've seen like people get in trouble with Red Guards. People just were talking to me on Facebook, so sweet. That's up. So apparently, I'm an infamous revisionist. Dope. I love it. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, we are CIA funded. And degenerate. Don't no, forget degenerate. We're not CIA funded. We're Putin funded. They're both Bonapartist donors, so they get to choose what we read. <laughs> it's well, all one system, Donald. If Putin got to choose what we read, this would just be a Dugan podcast. And we already read Dugan. We wouldn't be talking about Mao. There's a lot more Dugan we can read, but anyway, back to Mao. Back to Mao. Read Dugan. We said uwu to Dugan. Oh I my think God. that um, we did say uwu to Dugan as an entity. I'm not going to say who said uwu to Dugan. Yeah, but as an entity. Who, who would do that? Who would do such a disgusting and rotten thing? You yeah, know, just to flirt with an outright fascist god. Yeah. All right. Anyway, it was seen. the The scene message did come up. Yeah. Oh, that, that's so good. We, so, we, got, we got a JPEG of that somewhere. Anyway, right. anyway let's, let's get back to the... Are we still talking about that. Anthractus or... There is a kind of aspect of Mao where like the masses are right. For example, he says that if you know there's a failure, it's because of the party and not because of the masses. Right. And you the should producer. always have faith in the masses, which is the peasants and the proletariat primarily. Yeah. And the, the masses are always in the end right, even if, you know... There's an antagonistic contradiction. Even when you're crushing them, they're they're still right in a way. Well, do you want to move on from on practice to on contradiction, kind of on that note? Because we uh, never got to the stages of cognitive practice, Donald. <laughs> stages of right. cognitive practice. I mean, how are you gonna know knowledge? You know? Like, Alright, so what are Mao's stages of cognitive practice? Well, first you're in practical activity, and then you're in this perceptual stage. You have this sense-oriented, empirical kind of phenomenology of the shit around you. You only see the external relations of things. But then, a new stage with inference, judgment, concepts. That's a stage of rational, logical knowledge. And then, you take this rational, logical knowledge and you apply it. You apply it to revolutionary practice. And either it's verified... And then you repeat it over and over, which in a process that never ends and gets closer and closer to the truth. Or it doesn't actually get into falsification that much, actually. But I feel like it's implied that if it doesn't happen, if it's not verified, then you don't just repeat it over again, right? You have to, like, you know, go back to square one. Yeah. Long story short, okay? It's a statement of epistemological pragmatism and the theory of knowledge, practice, is, is, is where everything comes from. It's not like you can come up with an idea and, and then test it. No, no, no. That idea has to come from practice. So no complex math here. A lot of this is true from like a social standpoint. Totally. And if he wasn't saying all knowledge, I wouldn't be so snarky. Well, that's the problem is he's saying all knowledge comes from activity. It comes from, you know, the dialectic of subject and object actively transforming the world that leaves no room for passive knowledge or things that we consider to be true irregardless of 
be specific circumstances and concrete situation. It should be like natural scientific laws. And that's one of the problems with that approach. All through Sarah, he tries to fix that gap with the idea of theoretical practice, where oh, basically yeah, doing theory is basically a form of practice. I think Bogdanov actually argues a similar thing, that simple science, even it's just mathematics, is a form of labor and a form of intellectual creation. And so you can't really... Uh, make that kind of distinction. So I guess that's how other theorists would solve that problem. Right, they just obfuscate. Yeah. So, of course, that's almost the best argument for, you know, what we do, which is that, you know, theory is praxis, and <laughs> sitting on here and talking about this is actually yeah. is revolutionary praxis. That's how knowledge forms. I'm sure Mao would love that interpretation. Um, yeah, it's, that's... Uh, I don't know. That's just gibberish. I mean, usually the thing is, is let's say there's some kind of political event, and then there's a bunch of different people all around the world who have different interpretations on it, and people argue about them. And as the course of the event follows through, and people's you know ideas develop on the event, and different ideas come to dominate, you know, amongst different people as. Okay, like take Syria for example, you have different camps kind of form on that event, and then eventually a historical consensus and a kind of dissident consensus is established. How truth is determined is a lot more complex than what Mal is saying here. Yeah, so I think that pretty much gets to uncontradiction. That's the background, and uncontradiction is built on on practice. So. The non-contradiction, yeah. I just thought that there were parts of it that were straight opportunistic. <laughs> like, well, there's parts that are literally about the KMT and aligning with the KMT and how his theory shows how it was justified in different positions. <laughs> Maybe we should go section by section. Uh, yeah. First one, the two world outlooks. The two world outlooks are basically metaphysics and dialectics, and a lot of this just kind of, like, recapitulates, like, basic diamat from what I can understand. Um, I don't know how much I would like to say about that. Yeah, there's two Manichaean oh. world outlooks. It's a big battle between metaphysics and dialectics, which, yeah, I think we've talked about this. Dialectics, not metaphysics. I hate the way they use metaphysics. They uh, quote he used that was interesting. To certain as I was saying, dialectics is, in the proper sense, a study of contradiction in the very essence of objects. Which, I mean, I don't know if I agree with that per se, but I think what he means by that is basically saying that if you take an object and you abstract from the concrete to the very essence of the object and determine what its inner contradictions are, for example, the value form, you're abstracting the idea of value from capitalism and finding the contradictions within that abstraction, that real abstraction that rules society. That's what I think is the rational kernel of dialectics here. So the second section is the universality of contradiction. One of the things that he asserts in this section is that the universality of contradiction exists in the particularity of contradiction. And so, like, from particular instances, you can extract, like, these larger antagonisms, basically. Yeah, it's, it's from looking at the concrete particular aspects of the entire thing, and then you relate those back to the universal, I guess, what he's trying to get at. 
And that's how you sort of find the contradictions. Right. So in the universality of contradiction, he asserts that contradiction exists in the development of all things. And the process of development of each thing is a movement of opposites from beginning to end. Mao is kind of trying to do something different here from what Stalin was is trying to do. Where Stalin was more so trying to like, teach what dialectical materialism was, Mao is kind of taking the idea of dialectics and just going off on his own grand metaphysical theory just off the idea of contradiction itself here. Uh, he quotes Engels saying, motion itself is a contradiction. Math is contradictory, and, man. Yeah, like A, A, there's the, the plus and the minus. He just runs off like this list. The, of, like, the action and reaction, positive and negative. You're from Lenin. Combination. Yeah. yeah, that's from Lenin. And this is literally from Lenin's philosophical notebooks. It's not like he wrote a book saying this. But he's trying to construct a whole metaphysics of contradiction out of this. And that's not necessarily bad. I think that could be interesting. And I think there actually is some interesting stuff here. Yeah, I think I think there's something actually properly Hegelian here. Like, and it's, it kind of strikes me that, I don't know, I, I, I feel like this idea of dialectics as grasping the internal development and contradiction of things. Yeah. This there's is, a, it's there's not that bad, actually. Like, Stalin feels like he's describing things from textbooks, not to buy into Mao's rhetoric. But oh, yeah, Mao is totally more of a free thinker and intellectual, I think, than Stalin. And he's trying to do his own thing here. But we also have to look at, there is this, there is some political opportunism. You know, like, oh, over okay, here, he's right. talking about the Deborin school. They have this wrong view on dialectics, which means that they don't see the contradiction between the Kublaks and the smaller peasants, which also causes him to have the wrong interpretation of the French Revolution and not see the contradictions in the Third Estate. And so these Boran Knights that Mao was kind of ranting against are really just agents of Bukharin and therefore capitalist <laughs> wreckers. And what the Boran Knights don't do is say that contradiction is universal. They say that an external factor can be the thing that drives a contradiction, whereas Mao is saying contradictions are universal, and all contradictions are part of a greater contradiction, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a big part of what he's going after, is this whole idea that there's not a contradiction between the kulaks and the peasants. <laughs> hey, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the Deborn School is not getting a fair hearing. Oh, not at all. I mean, it's, the, the, uh, the Boren school is way better. The argument that he represents as theirs has a terrible logical leap in it. Um, it's basically that, like, if contradictions aren't, like, within something from the beginning and they only come out in development, then that means they must come from outside, which yeah. doesn't follow at fucking all. And the funny thing that Mao says is basically like, I mean, I didn't read Deborin or nothing. I would never read that. But I read some Soviet critiques of Deborin. So, like, we're, yeah, getting, exactly. we're getting like a third-hand, like, telephone version of this argument. Whatever the fuck this argument is, it's probably stronger than that. It's well, like Deborin like, was the guy who became, during the period of a nap, he basically became the Soviet philosopher on dialectics. And... So with the turn to Stalinism, he basically became the guy that everyone turned to beat on. <laughs> Bukharin didn't even side with him in the philosophical debates. So it's funny that they're even like trying to make this, you know, accusation of Bukharinism with the Boran. This is kind of an obscure historical side almost, but no, no, it no, is no, a big part of the text. There's not a lot of the Boran even in English. 
But Helena Sheehan's book does talk a lot about the Boren and the debates in that era, which is worth reading. Probably the fifth time I've said that on this show. <laughs> as per the theory of knowledge laid out and on practice, as long as you can be sure that what you read had a secure, infallible grasp of the contradictions, then what you have is now certain knowledge. So Mao has certain knowledge that the DeBorn school sucks. And is Bukharanist, Trotskyist, yeah, they, and yeah. they completely yeah. agree with Bukharan. Well, they see Bukharan as the source of the capitalist rotor tendency, which they see as Dang being the embodiment of and the main enemy during the Cultural Revolution. They had to, you know, they had to purge the capitalist rotors who had a Bukharanist idea of transition, which good is job, just good absurd. job, guys. Good job, yeah, guys. Just, yeah, exactly. Just, did a great job of getting rid of all those capitalist rotors. Well, but the thing is, they were going against the bureaucrats. They actually were doing things to try and abolish bureaucracy. It just, they didn't have an alternative system in place, so it just led to bureaucracy again. <laughs> I get pretty cynical about that stuff. You don't think Mao is just playing them? Like No, I mean, I've, I've read a lot about the Cultural Revolution, and even if Mao was just playing them, millions of people were not just playing, if you see what I'm saying. Like, they actually, I know, I understand. They actually saw this as a chance to take into their own hands the building of socialism, which Mao ended up having to repress. Well, right. At the same time, not, like, not having a... to repress is the point that I'm getting at, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Isn't, isn't Mao just taking advantage of this, like, of the latent energy there? I think you're right, but I think the Cultural Revolution was unleashed by Mao for a kind of opportunistic reason. But at the same time, it set in the forces beyond his control that would try to do things beyond what would be deemed acceptable by Stalin, because it was, basically what he did was he accidentally allowed society to have an open discussion about building socialism, and in a society where you weren't really allowed to do that, and you had a very contradictory system, that led to a lot of you know social conflict. Well, I mean that's an open discussion. You mean more like a long struggle session and like weird mob violence? That's I mean, but I think that. even say that is to buy into the right-wing narrative. There were, for example, Chinese intellectuals who formed their own intellectual groups and wrote theories about the uh, mode of production in China and what kind of changes they would have to make to the system in order to move into communism. I think that, yes, there were insane struggle sessions and atrocities committed in the Cultural Revolution, and there was this kind of malice ideology gone insane, but there was also working-class resistance and actual attempts from people to change their system. There actually is a hidden history of people in actually existing socialism trying to reform it or even you know, use revolution or political revolution to change it. That isn't really discussed. And it contains some of the most interesting critiques of those systems. I couldn't agree with that last sentiment more, but I think what we're getting at here is that, you know, yes, even ancient, like, classical times or whatever, when there were the old demagogues, like, the energy they were harnessing was real, and the aspirations of the people they were taking advantage of are real. And I'm not, you know, besmirching the honor of the proletarians and peasants who are struggling 
in the Cultural Revolution, or I suppose it was the students in that against the bureaucracy, in the Cultural Revolution. The thing really is, not the point. The point is, you know, talk about Mao's strategy. The thing is, is that it went beyond the students, which is what Mao didn't want to happen. He wanted to basically just use the students against his rivals, but a lot of their ideas started taking hold in the factories and even amongst the peasants. And you know, this was not what Mao planned for, and led to basically a sort of mini civil war within society where people were actually starting to develop a critique of the party state itself and try to form a new party, for example. But a lot of people came to the conclusion that the, you know, the CPC itself had to be destroyed and a Soviet Republic of some kind had to be formed. You know, there was an attempt to make a new Paris commune, essentially, that was crushed. The second Shanghai commune. Yeah, I mean, there was the first one, which was... You know, way more authentic, really. The second one was kind of a bullshit ploy, actually. More managed. They ended up just being a proxy for the military. But the whole cultural revolution is a, it's a whole other discussion we can get into. And this piece is really from way, way before then. Right, of course. So should we move on to the third section? The particularity of contradiction. Oh, boy. So let's see. A few things I noted. Uh, he asserts that... Man's knowledge of matter is knowledge of its forms of motion, that different fields of knowledge are differentiated by the contradictions that determine them. And picking up a little bit from on practice, how man derives knowledge by abstracting broad principles from particular instances or an accumulation of particular instances. We who are engaged in the Chinese Revolution should not only understand the particularity of these contradictions in their totality, that is, in their interconnections, we should also study the two aspects of each contradiction as the only means to understand the totality. When we speak of understanding each aspect of a contradiction, we mean understanding what position each aspect occupies, what concrete forms assume in its interdependence and in contradiction with its opposite, and what concrete methods are employed in the struggle with its opposite, when the two are both independent and in contradiction, and also after the independence breaks down. It is important to study these problems. Lenin meant just this when he said that the most essential thing in Marxism, the living soul of Marxism, is the concrete analysis of concrete conditions. I mean, concrete so, analysis of concrete conditions is you know, just a classic quote. It's hard to disagree with that one. Because in the end, yeah. and, and this is what ultimately got me about Bordigo was in an interview with him where he basically says that in the end, if the ideals in the in the concrete don't match, the ideals come first. When really, what has to come first is the concrete. You know, like a dialectics of the concrete, not just the dialectics of abstract thought experiments. Basically, I think this part is interesting. I mean, it's repetitive and kind of boring, but it was interesting in the sense that the difference in the essential contradiction is what makes things different in general. Since everything, as a matter of its basic being, has a driving contradiction and other secondary contradictions around that, like that essential contradiction is the essence of it. So a different thing just has a different contradiction. Like, Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about it, you'd say, what is the essential contradiction? And is it, you know, the third world versus the first world? Or is it the bourgeois versus the proletariat? And then, then everything else also has to be the secondary contradiction. So basically, you're saying that everybody except everything except for one thing is a secondary contradiction, which doesn't really leave room for a lot of nuance. Yeah, that's pretty much like the worst thing about this. 
is i mean maybe the political apologism is worse but you know from a yeah intellectual perspective because you either end up with just nationalism or workerism because if you say that the the proletarian and capital you know contradiction is you know the primary thing and everything else is secondary you know that can lead to you know workerism or if you say that it's you know the third world nations versus the imperialist core and that's the primary contradiction and then that means that you're going to be making class a secondary contradiction which is asking for a disaster so it's I think it's a flawed way of looking at things that leads to a lot of wacky Maoist positions, unless I'm misunderstanding it, because I'm sure that some Maoist blogger out there has written about this. And No way, guys. Mao is totally intersectional. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is I can see people actually kind of changing stuff around this, though, and tinkering with it and making it into a kind of Althusserian intersectionalist-like version of Marxism, almost. I can kind of see that because of the next section, but the first thing I want to say here is the the stagism. He kind of like draws out and a, a little bit in the first in the, in the previous section, but also in this section, he draws out this idea that um, contradictions resolve. The primary contradictions resolve. Something ends, and the new contradictions begin. And that there's like that's a basis for stagism, which is vague, but. It's trying to, I don't know, this does remind me quite a bit of Hegel, you know. Well, let's give that idea a fair chance, because I actually thought that made some sense. No, 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 I mean, no, that makes plenty of sense. That's, that's, yeah, you, that's have a, you have a world system, or you have a social formation where there's development, and you have certain social relations that are antagonistic, that are contradictory, that show internal, you know, that are just irrational and create limits to the growth and development of that system. And so for the system to develop to a new level, it has to overcome those contradictions, those, you know, whatever you want to, you know, antagonisms, whatever you want, I guess, and he does say that antagonism is through contradictions, but I've always understood contradictions as antagonisms, basically. And so... For example, of capitalism, we have this antagonism between classes, and the productive forces are just going to keep growing in a in a dangerous and inhumane and way that's you know ecologically dangerous until we change the contradiction between labor and capital and transition to a you know, socialist economy. So there is some truth to that, I think. Yeah, it's definitely not how he sees it. He sees yeah. the capitalist relations of production holding back the productive forces in a particular way that is only really plausible in a real qualia sort of way. I digress. He mentions some classical Chinese lit here. Oh, God. Yeah, I probably shouldn't even attempt this. Shui Hu Xuan. I'm sure there's some tones I'm missing there. He's using him as an example of idealism, right? I don't think so. I think he's saying that there's some sweet proto-diamat in there. I don't even think he calls it proto. He just says it's diamat, right? Um, if we can go to that section. Yeah. Is it what he's talking to the novel he's talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, though, because if he sees dialectical materialism, this idea of contradiction as this eternal metaphysics, it makes sense that that would show up in novels as well, that even novels would kind of develop according to these eternal laws, like the plot, for example, 
is a contradiction within it. And in this novel is the story of the contradiction being reconciled, essentially. There's even an antagonist. Yeah. Remember in middle school when you learn you have to have the protagonist and the antagonist, but you have to have conclusion and the conflict is between the protagonist and the antagonist coming to an understanding of some kind or it's the resolution of the contradiction. It's the resolution. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it is kind of fun to think about things. At the same time, though, my bond mouse claim that this is a universal law of the universe. I don't know. Not really. <laughs> I kind of like wonder what this stuff is getting at because, you know, there are like, I don't know, when you do like long-term historiography and you look at like the changes in priorities of a territory and the kinds of things that make the society tick, there's something plausible about this. There's even something plausible about a principal contradiction. Let me close the window. I mean, that's actually something I do kind of agree with because I think that there are, you know, antagonisms in society that like structure the relationships of the other antagonisms more than others, right? So that, I mean, that's basically class. Like the class arrangement in society will determine how the other antagonisms within that society will play out and it will structure that. That's why we're Marxists. I feel like it's a pretty like elemental principle. So you would say that basically... There's a primary contradiction of the proletariat and capital, and then all the other contradictions are kind of secondary contradictions. I would say that. Not that they're not important, but that ultimately the class contradiction is structuring everything else in society in a way that other antagonisms and contradictions aren't. I mean, aside from gender, it's the one kind of constant throughout history. It relates directly to the way that human beings reproduce themselves as a species because it's it determines like the the relations and the means of production so yes perhaps yeah. gender is the primary contradiction until the establishment of surplus and then i mean and maybe only then i mean i was going to say maybe you know gender and class are completely interrelated in how they form but i think there's also I don't know. I've been reading this guy Rudolf Barrow, is East German guy. And he's saying that you have, you know, the gender division of labor, you have but you also have like the mental manual division of labor, like the basic division between people who do mental work and people who manage society and then people who do all the grunt unskilled work and how these this contradiction is kind of a, a always becomes more and more developed in class societies. And you say that basically East Germany, in order for it to move into real socialism, has to basically overcome this mental manual division of labor. And so I've been thinking that maybe the proletarian and capital is not so much the primary contradiction as more as it's just a central contradiction, as one of the most important contradictions or factors and kind of stabilizing reproduction of everything basically two things i want to say first thing is that i don't know i have an expanded version of class so it, yeah the idea that it all boils down to proletariat and capital is you know it's important for class society but what you're referring to with the mental manual division of labor and with gender and division of reproductive labor yeah that's that all predates capitalism you could say that like that whole cluster of things is class as I tend to do, but then, you know, it's pretty hard to figure out exactly how to phrase the 
the essential, fundamental, primary well, they're, contradiction. They're, they're pre-capitalist forms of class, basically. And the point that uh, Barrow tries to make in this analysis is that basically uh, the Soviet system fails because it abolishes the wage relation and it abolishes private ownership and commercialization of the means of production, but it still leaves this mental manual and patriarchal division of labor in place. And so a new form of class society kind of begins to develop around it, even if the classes yeah. aren't strictly definable. And so he's kind of this East German dude trying to figure out, so how can and you know the people get together and go on a campaign to reform the system and make it, you know, truly socialist, basically. It's very interesting. I highly recommend reading it. It's called The Alternative in Eastern Germany. Yeah, it does sound pretty interesting. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Rosa? Um, yeah, well, there was a moment where you were briefly touching upon, like, Mal, like, sort of claiming that there's a dialectical element to, like, Chinese classics, and that sort of brings up, like, an interpretation of Mao's dialectics that specifically relates to the idea that he's, like, basically using uh, Taoist dialectics rather than Hegelian or even Daimat dialectics. That's interesting. Because he shits on Taoism, but that's exactly what he would do if he was, if he's a good Marxist, you know? Since, like, Taoist dialectics are apparently focused on conflict. It does kind of read like conflict theory translated into diamat talk. Because it's basically saying that society has all these different hierarchies of conflicts. And the progression of society is all these conflicts being resolved, basically. Again, there's something Hegelian about this. So Zizek does an, an introduction to this in a prominent audiobook, which I think you can only get on Audible now or something. I don't think it was like that before. It's Audible has a monopoly on uh, Zizek audiobooks featuring Mao. Anyway, Mao refers to Zizek refers to Mao as like highly vulgarizing Hegel, but. I think Hegel was also thinking of like battles and things like that as examples of dialectics of history working themselves out, like the cunning of history working itself out through people. I've expected Mao to be like, you know, totally missing the point. Whereas I kind of see him, I mean, again, more creative than Stalin, but also like not totally wrong, just like in this opportunistic way. I'd also say that this is the height of Mao. This is when Mao was, you know, a brilliant military leader. He was running red bases in China. He was fighting a war against the Japanese. He was, you know, a great military leader building prestige amongst the Chinese people. He hadn't come into power yet. He hadn't fucked up in the Great Leap Forward yet. This is prime golden era Mao. This is Mao at his best, basically. If you're going to read Mao, this is the Mao that you're going to go with. I looked it up, and it is, like, the basis of Taoist, like, dialectics is contradiction, like, yin and yang, that sort of thing. Oh, wow. So it makes sense that he would draw upon, like, Chinese classical philosophy more than, like, Marxism, really, because the only Marxism that he's familiar with is, like, basic, like, Soviet textbook stuff. Stalin's introduction, and he's more well-versed in, like, Chinese classical philosophy, as his education in his youth was based on that. 
sort of a non-traditional version of Confucian education that he received. Mao started off as more of a Kropotkin-influenced anarchist, but then he got into the uh, Marxism via Karl Kautsky, actually. So I think that's... Um, that's really? Not Lenin? One of the few Marxist books that was available in China during this period was Karl Kautsky. And so that was one of the books that Mao had read. But he was initially very influenced by Kropotkin-style anarchism. And he was basically what would be looked at today as a left communist in the early Comintern, huh. funny enough. Damn, ultra-lefts. Yeah. Uh, just to, to speak to Rosa's point, I think this totally makes sense because when you read Marx and Engels and you know even Lenin and Stalin, they're throwbacks to classical Greek antiquity and drawing out you know the dialectical thought of Heraclitus for instance you know Mao has a different background and so is working with you know different materials but those insights also exist in ancient Chinese culture and I mean I don't know especially when I look backwards in the western canon the whole thing about you know the the east being more dialectical or whatever than the west is I don't know if that holds up it seems like there's strands in both societies and depending on the time period one is ascendant and the other isn't or something like, I mean, there's all kinds of nonsense Orientalism. It's like, oh, the East is more yeah. collectivist. The East is more dialectic. But that's that's yeah, all nonsense. Exactly. Like, I think the point that Mao's making with Chinese literature is that these laws of dialectics are basically universal. Contradiction is everything. And so literature in China is going to be based on contradiction, but so is literature in the United Anywhere. States. Yeah, because everything is based off the law of contradictions. And so even, you know, religious philosophies are going to develop in a way that reflects this. Like I said before, it's it's one of those things where this is kind of an interesting way of looking at things, but it also comes up against the limits. What are those limits exactly? Well, it kind of reminds me of Nietzsche, honestly. <laughs> reminds me of like the philosophical like lessons of Darwinism of trying to think of what life really is. You know, life is struggle. You know, we didn't actually get to the point about principal aspects of the contradiction and antagonism. There's unity of opposites, which basically just means things are ontologically independent. They rely on each other for being and meaning. We've covered that so much. Let's see. Do we want to talk more about principal aspect of contradictions and principal contradictions and shit? That's section four, right? That's actually yeah. like the most interesting section here. That was pretty interesting. And I think at some point during the Stalin episode, we said that Mao ultimately ends up arguing that the relations trump the forces in general. But if this is the source of that, I, I didn't see that because... Well, no, that would like cultural revolution era okay. Mao. Okay. What he basically says here is that what the principal contradiction is can basically change. So, but this yeah. is not static. The principal and non-principal aspects of a contradiction transform themselves into each other, and the nature of things change accordingly. In a given process or at a given stage in the development of a contradiction, A is the principal aspect, and B is the non-principal aspect. At another stage or another aspect, the roles are reversed. A change determined by the extent of the increase or decrease in the force of each aspect is struggle against the other in the course of the development of a thing. Basically, Mao is saying there's principal contradictions, but then they can become secondary, but then become principal again. And so he uses the Kuomintang, the KMT, as an example, because at first, you know, infamously, the Chinese Communist Party sided with the KMT, the Chinese nationalists, then got slaughtered by them when the Chinese Communists attempted the revolution in 1927. 
and then that's what led Mal to go out and do the long march. And then eventually he united with the KMT again against the Japanese. And the Chinese Communist Party was against the KMT. The principal contradiction was the class struggle and the contradiction between Japanese imperialism and China being colonized was secondary. But then when situations changed, colonialism and imperialism became the primary contradiction and class struggle became the secondary contradiction. So an alliance with the KMT was justified. So here's where you see the germ of the idea that would come up later in the cultural revolution. For instance, and the contradiction between the productive forces and the relations of production, the productive forces are the principal aspect. And the contradiction between theory and practice, practice is the principal aspect. And the contradiction between the economic base and superstructure, the economic base is the principal aspect. And there's no change in their respective positions. This is the mechanical materialist conception, not the dialectical materialist conception. True, the productive forces, practice, and the economic base generally play the principal and decisive role. Whoever denies this is not a materialist. But it must also be admitted that in certain conditions, such aspects as the relations of production, theory, and the superstructure in turn manifest themselves in the principal and the decisive role. When it is impossible for the productive forces to develop without a change in the relations of production, then the change in the relations of the production plays the principal and decisive role. That's where politics and command comes from is that basically material forces be damned. We just need to basically put our force in the political will of the people and put politics above everything else. And that was kind of the spirit of the Cultural Revolution and the uh, Great Leap Forward as well. Well, there, there is a properly Marxist idea right. here right. in that basically when politics is in the way of the productive forces developing you know then that's basically a, a political problem that needs to be resolved which you know i think is basically true i mean yeah definitely there's yeah. not only that like just the conceptual relation that he's talking about is i mean i would just never describe it the way he's describing it but this, this is how i would think of it right because i usually think about this in terms of forces and relations of production which you know i want to pick a primary antagonist I'm going to tag myself as uh, forces and relations of production. So, like, you know, productive forces, you know, determine the horizons of your productive relations. But the production relations also determine other things and very important things about the productive forces, about the character of the productive forces. A lot of Robert Brenner's work is about this. There's and, a feedback loop between the productive forces and the relations of production. Right. The way that they are causal on each other is qualitatively different. They cause different important aspects of the collective whole. And I think this actually captures that admirably. Well, the problem here is, you know, Mao kind of had this idea that because the relations of production could take prominence over the forces of production, that you could make changes in the relations of production that were out of reach within the forces of production, if that makes sense. Like, you know, be damned, we don't have enough steel, we're not industrialized, but if we try to, we can basically form, like, you know, village communes and communize the countryside. The problem is that it's conceptualized as principal aspect of the contradictions switching. So you still have this, like, extreme focus. So in the right situation, absolutely everything, you know, hinges on this primary aspect because it won now. I'm trying to read it charitably. That seems, you know, really not like the point I was trying to make, I guess, which is that, you know, there are specific dynamics within the thing. And 
you know, it's probably not going to be overwhelmed in those specific dynamics and what he's talking about. It's slightly more theoretically complex than what Stalin puts forward in dialectical and historical materialism, I guess. And it has some original elaboration. And there is here like a subtle critique of Stalin because he can't critique Stalin directly. You know, he does actually critique Stalin directly, though, later on in economic problems. He he actually writes a critique of Stalin's economic problems of the USSR. Does he do it here, here, though? I think think this is until later on. That's what I'm saying, though. Like in this piece, like he can't critique Stalin directly because their party is still extremely dependent upon like Soviet aid for their continued operations. And he goes on and talks about how we have to examine like the you know true like empirical situation and draw from that and not be dogmatic. But, you know, he never actually talks about the influence that, you know, the Soviet Union has upon you know the, the Chinese Revolution and what's and what Soviet foreign policy, how it's influenced the development of things. That would be external causation. What are you, an idealist? Yeah. And right. there's also another reason for that, which is that Mao had a lot of disdain for the common turn and thought that they were actually more harmful than good. And it was actually happy when Stalin disbanded the common turn. He saw them as basically getting in the way of how he wanted to do things. A lot of Maoists actually argue that. Mao proves that national parties are more important than a common turn. And so it's better to have like national parties in a united federation than kind of like a common turn like party because Mao showed that every nation really does have its own kind of rogue socialism. And he's managed to bury in here like a critique of Stalin's like forces of production determinism, basically. Right, right. Yeah, that's what Althusser really grabs from Mao. You know, the problem is. To what extent is this a formula just for tailing whatever's going on? I mean, and to what extent was Chinese Communist Party's strategy of national liberation organic outcome of the class movement in China at the time? And to what extent was it imposed on it by Stalin in order to further his own sort of geopolitical needs? On the question of the common turn and China's geopolitical needs, I think, like Lexi pointed out, Mao had a very internal look at it. He kind of saw within China itself the entire contradiction could basically be solved. And China was great enough and a big enough of a nation where China could have socialism on its own. And the funny story is there's actually a letter with Tagliati by Mao where Tagliati is telling Mao to chill out on the nukes. And Mao says, you know, if the rest of the world nukes itself, as long as China stands, we'll rebuild the world and create the communist paradise as long as, you know, the Chinese survive because we're the greatest nation. Nice. And so China does have this kind of, you know, at least Mao does. He kind of has this view that it's, it's, it's almost like Chinese chauvinism, but it's like chauvinism of being the best at communism. Yeah, I mean, well, and also, I guess, turns out Mao was a secret posadist, but that's another point. <laughs> well, I mean, this was the Cold War and also the Sino-Soviet split, and I think that that was one of the most idiotic periods of history of all time. It's when China and the Soviet so Union awesome. were literally about to nuke each other. That was just disgusting. 
It's pretty awesome. Like, because at the same time, all the capitalist countries were trading and cooperating. And it just really showed how like backward that kind of communism was compared to fucking capitalism. I mean, it makes me really not happy to say, but you know what I mean? Like they couldn't even, the two major world communist powers could not fucking cooperate with each other against the entire capitalist world and spread well, the communism problem, together. Well, insane. let's look at it. I mean, if we want to talk about the you know, Soviet split, one side of the Soviet Union gone through a horrible period of Stalinist dictatorship, and then it went through a period of like, all right, that was really fucked up and horrifying. We kind of need to like recognize that some bad stuff happened and that, you know, we need to have a thought in Khrushchev. And so Mao responds to it as basically being like, oh, the Soviets are going soft. We, we can't work with them anymore. And all these Soviet factories and Soviet equipment is in China. And the Soviets were doing so much to help build up China. And then China just decides for basically ideological reasons that USSR is now revisionist. They're now imperialist. They're actually more imperialist than the U.S. They kick out all these Russian workers and engineers and leave all this unconstructed and unattended equipment. And it's just a total shit show. And then they start getting more and more anti-Russia. And it really kind of seems like a bit of ideological zealotry from Maoism. It's insane. Because if you think about it, they were accusing the Soviet Union of not being hard enough on Western imperialism. And so because the Soviet Union wasn't hard enough on Western imperialism, they decided to side with Western imperialism yeah. to actually support Pinochet. Yeah, that's totally not why they were mad at the Soviet Union. I mean, that yeah, happened the, to be true. They were soft on Western imperialism, but still. Yeah, the Soviet Union still did more for national liberation than China ever did. China, you know, they, they did help Vietnam. They also invaded Vietnam and helped Pol Pot. Yeah, they did more harm almost in a way. Selling oil to Mussolini during the invasion of Ethiopia. Anyway. Yeah, that was also bad. Yeah. Do you guys want me to read the Mao quotes that Donald brought up about, like, the nukes and how China would survive? Fuck yeah. All right, so... I found them in, like, Defense of Lost Causes by Slavoj Žižek. He has a chapter on Mao. But the first one, here we go. We stand firmly for peace and against war, but if the imperialists insist on unleashing another war, we should not be afraid of it. Our attitude is on this question is the same as our attitude towards any disturbance. First, we are against it. Second, we are not afraid of it. The First World War was followed by the birth of the Soviet Union with a population of 200 million. The Second World War was followed by emergence of a socialist camp with a combined population of 900 million. If the imperialists insist on launching a Third World War, it is certain that several hundred million more will turn to socialism, and then there will be no room left on the earth for such imperialists. The United States cannot annihilate the Chinese nation with its small stack of atom bombs, even if the U.S. atom bombs were so powerful that when they dropped, they could make a hole right through the earth, even blow it up. It would hardly mean anything for the universe as a whole, though it might be majority felt even for the solar system. <laughs> uh, wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's a good point. 
That's honestly peak nationalism. You're literally saying that you can nuke as much of Earth as you want, but as long as the Chinese people stand, it's good. It's okay. Well, well, and no, humanity will progress. Like the last there's some before. metaphysical thing left behind. Even if you nuke us and there's a hole in the Earth and it's felt in the solar system, like whatever, the universe doesn't care, man. <laughs> it's such a non-sequentor ending too you know it's like yeah if you nuke us fucking whatever in 100 years we'll all be dead okay like who cares yeah yolo death. i see a lot of like you know aristotelian thought about potential and causality and the thing that's dumb about what he's saying is that you know if you get hit by a bus you know your internal development is the most important thing and the, the external development isn't the important thing I mean, unless, you know, that's the prime contradiction of some kind of greater object, but I wasn't considering that. Yeah. Didn't you say everything is an internal contradiction of an external contradiction in a way? That's all a dodge. But the point that I think is true that he's trying to get at is that for a lot of external stimuli to bring something out, it has to already have the potential for it in there. I mean, I guess for the human getting hit by a bus, it's the potential to be fragile when hit by a bus. The way I kind of understood the concept of contradiction wasn't that there's this kind of thing called contradiction that's always happening in nature that drives everything forward. But if you do an abstract analysis of society, basically determine certain social laws, you can find aspects of those social laws that are contradictory and lead to social antagonisms that lead to tendencies in society. But for now, contradiction... It's literally at the heart of everything, and it's what is the motor force almost of development. I just want to drop some of like Mao's specific formulation because there's a more abstract point but that I think he's getting at that I think is good. Like, okay, let's be real. The left sometimes by being super toxic and undermining the things that it claims to stand for drives some people to the right. It's hard to argue that it doesn't do that to some people. and there's constantly a question. Did the left make those people fascist or did they draw out a tendency that had to already be there in order for them to have that reaction? There's something to that internal sense of potentiality that does you know, bear fruit when thinking about it philosophically, that there's something important about internal development that makes whatever you know, external effect Right. Michael Rechtenwald had to be a little unhinged for all that to happen would be another example. Yes. Yeah. yes. For, not, not everybody has reacted to the phenomenon of like mass SJW in that way. <laughs> right. Right. What so, if that tendency exists in all leftists? Well, I didn't yeah, even there's, mean there's, all there's a Rechtenwald inside of all of us. Maybe, but then <laughs> it's but it's not always expressed. I mean, I think if I was going to go wrecked, I would have done it already. What are we getting at here again that there's kind of a, a contradiction between wanting to be Michael Reckenwald versus wanting to be an SJW? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm just saying that, like, yeah, that's exactly what we were saying. I don't want to be a uh, deborist or whatever, but I do think that the <laughs> external thing that brings out that contradiction is a uh, methamphetamine. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm for, sorry. For, all right, so... Michael Rechtenwald and amphetamine form one ontological some, hole. But let's look at someone else. Who's, let's look at your average MAGA chud, alt-right, QAnon, Pizzagate kid. It's, it's like, yeah, this is a reaction to kind of a loss of male entitlement and patriarchal authority. 
that's due to, you know, a change in the base that's related to the decline of the family and a change of the stupor structure, which is the increased position of women in society. And so there's a feeling that men have been stolen, something that's rightfully theirs, that these fucking, like, neckbeards have. Then there's, you know, the internal contradiction of, you know, people who can fucking accept that women are humans and then people who can't. And so... You know, people who can't accept women are humans are going to react to this external boss of privilege, you know, by being reactionary. I often think about this in regards to, you know, being queer or something and having the potential to be queer and, you know, certain people living lives outside of places where those potentials are going to flourish. You could pull the, the full mealy and say that, you know, everyone's, you know, like that and polymorphously perverse and i agree to a degree but some people are definitely more than others <laughs> and not everyone you know who even has you know great potential to be queer you know lives in a in a place where that's a possibility okay so we got two more sections of this thing left so five the identity and struggle of the aspects of a contradiction thoughts Here's a good quote from Lenin. I mean, I assume it's good because it's Lenin. Dialectics is the teaching which shows how opposites can be, how they happen to be, how they become identical. Under what conditions they are identical, transforming themselves into one another, I, the human mind, should take these opposites not as dead, rigid, but as living, conditional, mobile, transforming themselves into another. This example, you could say, is perhaps capital contains within itself the contradiction of the class struggle. The capital is kind of one total social relation, but this contradiction is not a dead, static, you know, thing that's in equilibrium but in constant motion. Theory says the common tang, which played a positive role at a certain stage in Chinese <laughs> history, became a counter-revolutionary party after 1927 because of its inherent class nature, because of imperialist blandishment, this being the conditions, but it has been compelled to agree to resist Japan because of the sharpening of the contradiction between China and Japan, because of the Communist Party's policy of united front. These I being love how so much in this text is just, and that's why dialectics means I made the right political decision. He's very obsessive showing how the commenting and how the fact that, you know, we had the side of these people who were massacring us a few years ago, you know, and, and basically liquidate ourselves into them. You know, this is just, you know, Marxist, you know, metaphysics and how it works. And some people just aren't smart enough to get it. So they're ultra left. <laughs> well, what's bizarre is the way they talk about the KMT almost as if it's like a monad, <laughs> like this, like self-sufficient entity that just because of its own internal contradictions, class structure changed at some point, as opposed to being something that, you know, existed within like a larger geopolitical framework. Well, yeah, he doesn't say that it's because the Communist Party allied with a party that was already counter-revolutionary. It's that the Communist Party was allied to a party that became counter-revolutionary. And so there was actually no mistake in allying with the KMD. In the end, Jeez. which is, you know, the, the shitty Stalinist Maoist line. Yeah, it's oh, this stuff is so tailor made as ideology. That's the really concerning thing is that, you know, I'm trying to be charitable and I'm finding like, you know, a lot of resonances with actual dialectical materialist or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. But oh, wow. Yeah. Just, 
really I, really works for this so much i'm sorry comrade the principal contradiction changed it reminds me of decadence theory right well yeah exactly the politics were right but then the objective conditions changed and now they're wrong these instances where this abstract idealistic almost uh deus ex machina type theoretical construction can be used to turn everything upside down that it needs to be Okay, so section six, the place of antagonism and contradiction. Because the question of the struggle of opposites includes the question of what is antagonism. Our answer is that antagonism is one form, but not the only form of the struggle of opposites. So an example, before it explodes, a bomb is a single entity in which opposites coexist in given conditions. The explosion takes place only when a new condition ignition is present. An analogous situation arises in all those natural phenomena which finally assume the form of open conflict to resolve old contradictions and produce new things. That's the example of an antagonism which he uh, says is just kind of a, a thing that's going to always exist, I guess. Yeah, it's universal, it's absolute. Uh, because as already mentioned, so long as classes exist, contradictions between correct and incorrect ideas in the Communist Party are reflections with, within the party of class contradictions. So just to get on the basic conceptual thing, right? Um, con- everything has a contradiction. That's what makes something uh, a discrete thing. Even though everything's interconnected, bong rip, you know, that's what makes something a thing. However, not everything has an antagonism. Antagonism is a particular form of contradiction. And I kind of grasp it's like a higher, more intense form of, you know, it's like there's a teleology here where maybe not everything goes there, but like maybe the principal contradictions, like, you know, in their highest, most intense phase would break into antagonism. Maybe I'm just imposing that on the on the text. Well, I guess he's almost trying to give a non-final, and this is actually interesting to think about it, he's kind of trying to say that there's always going to be contradictions in history, even after class antagonisms have been abolished. There's still going to be certain things that are going to drive history forward, and this thing that drives history forward is going to be contradiction. But... Lenin really- said... Lenin said, antagonism and contradiction are not at all one and the same. Under socialism, the first will disappear, the second will remain. There's this metaphysical universal world of contradiction that's making everything flow, but then there's certain contradictions that hold back the development of society and allow, you know, a full expression of these contradictions development and whatnot. It's not as boring as Stalin, that's for sure. I don't know. I'm very impressed, honestly. Like, Stalin, I kind of got what I was expecting. Mao, I thought this was going to be, like, much more bullshit because I, I think I've been exposed to some of his later writings and I wasn't very impressed. Well, yeah, this is, like I said, this is prime tier Mao. This is Mao when he's a revolutionary fighting, you know, a guerrilla war and the Mao who built the peasant army, you know, all the stuff that Mao was actually good for. Yeah, I mean, I had listened to this in audiobook before and kind of thought it, you know, thought this stuff was just like, I don't know, like diamat deepities and, you know. Yeah, I read it like that and I honestly had, I just skimmed it at first because I was so, nah, this is just kind of shit that, you know, I see crazy Maoists on left book saying, really. But then I, I gave it a closer reading, and I'll have to say there's something to it. Again, it abstracts like at a much higher level than, say, Stalin does. And I think that's like its strength and its weakness, because in the end of the day, a lot of this is kind of vague. You know, like one thing that Hegel always said about this kind of knowledge is that it only works retroactively, you know? 
What is it? What is the thing like the Owl of Minerva flies at midnight? So you can basically retroactively use dialectics to justify pretty much anything, I think. But he seems to imply here that once we grasp like the laws of dialectics, we can like predict the future or develop the correct praxis that will carry forward the revolution. And I don't really know if that's true. That's another Maoist thing that I've noticed is that they believe that, you know, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism is the highest form of Marxist science. And it's been developed at that stage by the praxis of Mao and the praxis of the Shining Path, as well as Stalin and the Bolsheviks. And basically, Maoism is quantum mechanics to what Leninism is just, or Marxism is just Newtonian physics, basically, because Mao discovers this whole new continent of Marxist thought by leading a peasant revolution in China and the Shining Path even more so that perfect Mao's formula, I guess. And so there's this idea that Mao is creating this immortal science of Marxism. From what I got out of, like, the thing that you're referencing is continuity and rupture, which is, like, muff. Don't want to call him muff what? God damn it. I can never I mean, pronounce I'm, his name. <laughs> this is more so Maoist that I've talked to and how they kind of sell me their ideology. But I guess yeah, they but, are influenced by Jane Mufwad Paul. Yeah, Mufwad. I'm, I'm just going to call him that, Mufwad. He argues that Maoism part of ML. M is only realized by like the Peruvian shining path in their proclamation as Maoism as like the third stage, the highest form of Marxism science. Only they realized it. Mao himself did not realize Maoism as a science because it was limited by Mao Zedong thought. Yeah, it was still that, Mao Zedong weird. thought. These modern-day MLMs will say that there is no such thing as Maoism until The Shining Path, because all Maoism before then was fake Maoism. I didn't <laughs> recognize that Maoism was an actual leap forward in science with Marxism-Leninism, and they just were anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninists who liked Mao, but we didn't grasp a true scientific rupture of Maoism. Shining Path shit's crazy. Like, you read some of their stuff on dialectics, and it's like the dialectics of violence. Ooh, and how, like, it's, yeah, it's pretty disturbing stuff. It's like how, like, life is, you know, made through killing things and not just weird, like, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and how we have to, like, kill things in order to create things. And I don't know. So, just... From what I've heard, like, they believe that, like, it was all determined, like, at the Big Bang. Like, from that point, it leads to communism. (laughs) From what I've heard about it, I have never read it before. Big Bang is idealist. Are you talking about Gonzalo thought? Yeah, we should really investigate Gonzalo thought. Wait, so Gonzalo actually did have a theory about the Big Bang leading the class struggle? The only stuff I've seen from him is, like, him, like, rah-rah, like, go die for me in the peasant war. Shit. <laughs> I mean, he was a professor of philosophy. Yeah, he yeah, had a he PhD. Wrote about, uh, he wrote this, about Kant, though. He, it's, it's so fucking weird. He wrote about Kant. This is why nobody likes philosophy professors. And all his original followers were students. It's so weird that a philosophy professor and a bunch of students decide to start a death cult, go to the peasants, 
and actually recruit people for their cause and then bring a country into the, the most insane civil war ever. Like, you think about it. If you're a college student <laughs> Maoist who's really guilty about their white privilege or whatever, or guilty about their first world privilege, this shit is fucking inspiring. <laughs> I mean... It's a recurring thing with Maoism yeah. for students to do something batshit insane, and that's totally cool. It's that not gets cool, like re- it gives the left a bad name. No, it's totally cool. It's very cool. <laughs> very cool that they just uh, randomly torture peasants and uh, things like that. Just very cool. I, mean, I, I don't see the problem with it. I don't see why they're hated in Peru. Why would they be hated in Peru? L'impérialisme dicte partout sa loi La révolution n'est pas un dîner La bomba est un tigre en papier Les masses sont les véritables héros Les ricains tuent et moi je mets Mao Mao Les fous sont rois et moi je bois Mao Mao Les bombes tonnent et moi je sonne Mao Mao Les bébés fuient et moi je fuis Mao Mao Les russes mangent et moi je danse Mao Mao Diable dénonce, je renonce Mao Mao That's it for this week. So Chairman Mao, we did Stalin, we did Mao. God, our hands are covered in blood. Which is good, because if we ever do a Pol Pot episode, then he won't... I mean, I'm wearing glasses, so... And, you know... Like us on everything. But most importantly, we have a new Patreon benefit. If you can't get enough of our razor-sharp wit and our, our very, very charming personalities, our, our slam-dunk political analysis, uh, philosophical incisiveness, true love of wisdom. I mean, really, who can? I can't blame you people. We've got a Discord. So if you want to pepper me with questions about Robert Brenner at like four in the morning, you can do that now. I mean, I might not answer, but a dollar a month, you can do that now. So. Yeah, come say hi. It's uh, it's kind of like Left Book, but without the Zuck. You, so you can't get the Zuck, but it's you get all the wisdom of Left Book. Just, anyway, I think you get the picture. One more thing. Tom O'Brien from, from Alpha to Omega podcast put together a Marxian value theory reading group. And so we're reading Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marxist Capital with our friends from Symptomatic Redness and Forlorad Sock and a couple people from Swampside. Rosa and I have made appearances. Live recordings are free. You don't have to be a member of anything. Uh, you can pop in noon EST on Saturdays. I'll be putting out edited versions of the broadcast under the Emancipation podcast. But you can also get them from Tom's feed, raw and uncut. Next time, we're coming at you with a little E.P. Thompson to wash the taste of blood out of our mouths.
Let's see. I, I want to just dip into the chat here. Mao's thought is an imminent critique of Stalinism. Why don't you look at Nick Land? We already did. If I die by falling asleep on my morning drive tomorrow because I was listening to this, would that count as a death caused by communism? Oh my god, what a mean question. I mean, if you ask Ben Shapiro, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's up to Ben Shapiro. The answer is yes. Black book plus one.